This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back. I'm your host, Avery Kreibold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. First of all, quick apology about the audio quality. We had technical difficulties and we actually had to record on a different platform than we normally do, but I don't think it's too noticeable. Today, it's back to batteries. We know this. I love energy storage. Maybe you do too. If you do, this is the episode for you. I'm talking to Jack Poucher from Natron Energy about their new sodium ion battery models. I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. Jack does a great job of explaining everything throughout. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Jack Poucher. You are the VP of Sales at Natron Energy. Now, from what I understand, Natron Energy is a company working on batteries, a different form of battery to what we think of when we're thinking about the batteries in our laptops or phones. Instead of the typical electrodes, you guys are using Prussian blue, and instead of lithium, you're using sodium. So we'll get into that in a little bit because I'm very interested into what the similarities and differences between the two are. So welcome, Jack. And what else can you tell me about Natron? Well, Avery, thank you for having me today and uh, appreciate the introductions. And we've been calling ourselves a startup, but we've moved well well past startup. We were founded in uh, 2012. Our CEO and founder uh, was working on his PhD at Stanford, developed the, the chemistry and the materials that you described for a new battery and took that off and did the classic, let's start a company in a garage in Palo Alto, which he did. We have moved from that and uh, we are now in production, albeit in low volume, but we are in commercial production with the industry's first uh, sodium ion battery. We believe it's a, it's a game changer for certain applications. Uh, I'll go on record right now as saying there is no such thing as a perfect battery. There are batteries that are really good at certain things, and there's batteries that you probably shouldn't use for other applications. You know, ours just does a lot of things unique that uh, and does them very, very well. Yeah, that's a very interesting part of batteries that I'm glad you mentioned because I'm interested to see what niche Natron is looking to enter and focus on. I talked to um, Storen Technologies in season one. And they're working on a vanadium flow battery that's for residential energy storage. Like that's their niche. So it's very interesting to see how diversified different battery technologies and chemistries are. Listeners of the show know that energy storage is one of my favorite topics because I think it's so pivotal to how we've developed both now and in the future from our information technology, laptops, computers to electric vehicles and widespread renewable energy. I think energy storage is super important. So what do you think about batteries now and in the future? What's going to change there and how are we going to be focusing on them? Avery, uh, I'm I'm very glad you brought up uh, vanadium and flow batteries. There are numerous types of batteries in the marketplace. Some are, are good at one thing and do it very, very well flow batteries do a good job of holding energy and dispatching it slowly over a long period of time. 
Other batteries hold energy for relatively shorter period of times, but hold it in a high density, such as a lithium-ion battery. Um, that's why we have laptops, and I'm picking up my cell phone right now. I realize we're on a podcast, so that does no good. Uh, <laughs> but that's why we have uh, cell phones and laptops, because of the, the energy density that's available in lithium. But, but unfortunately, what we've done over the years is we've tried to put a square peg in a round hole. We've tried to use lead-acid batteries for everything. Um, and lead-acid batteries are far from dead. I want to go on record as saying that for those who are not aware, uh, when we look at environmental responsibility and sustainability, one of the issues we have to contend with is hazardous materials, recycling, and what have you. And lead is really the poster child. Lead batteries are the poster child for the most recycled material on the face of the earth. Nothing compares with lead, probably because lead is so caustic. So let's, let's also not forget that we don't want it in our drinking water. You know, we don't want it in the air we breathe. So we, we really take a lot of precautions to, to make certain that we do recycle it. But lead batteries are about 98% recycled. So anyhow, a lot of different types of batteries, a lot of applications. And what Natron focuses on are what we'll call industrial power. So we're most likely not going to be in your home anytime in the near future for home-level energy storage. We're not going to be in EVs, even though the Chinese with a company called CATL recently introduced their own sodium ion battery that they believe they can squeeze in into electric vehicles. Good for them, more power to them, but that's really not a market that we believe sodium ions addresses very well. But what we do well is stationary power applications. So you think of hospitals, call centers, schools, emergency services, data centers is a big market that we want, we want to address. And in these applications, you typically need to bridge. You bridge from one source, typically the utility, to another source in the event of an outage, usually a generator. But in the near future, probably going to see a lot more fuel cells being used to back up data centers and other hospitals as we start moving to a multiple energy source economy. So there's a big focus on electricity, but we're going to see a big focus on hydrogen and, and other storage platforms because fuel cells work brilliantly with that, but they take a little bit of time to get up and running. Other markets that we can address because our battery can recharge incredibly fast. Uh, and when I say incredibly fast, I'm talking about going from zero volts, no charge, to 100% charged in eight to 10 minutes. So when you can take advantage of that, think of forklifts, for example, right? So you know, you've got the forklifts working around a warehouse, you've got electric tugs working around warehouses, you have electric tugs at, at airports. A lot of them right now are, are either diesel or propane powered, but you can use electricity. Again, no battery is perfect. So what I want to use a lithium ion battery from a Tesla or another electric vehicle on an airport tug? Probably not, because if that ever caught on fire, it's sitting next to what? You know, a plane full of jet fuel and people. Not a good scenario. But where our battery is completely non-flammable and has none of the thermal runaway that you see with, with uh, lithium and other chemistries. So maybe you would put it in that application because, you know, even though it doesn't have enough energy density to run all day long, Anytime you push an airport out, when, or an airport, <laughs> don't push the airport. Anytime you push the airplane out at the airport, <laughs> what do you do, right? You bring the tug back. Once you bring it back, you can plug it in and recharge it. So places where using a battery frequently is a great application for ours. So even though I said we, we wouldn't be expecting our battery to be used at your home or for grid-level energy storage, it would be tied to the grid for transitory services. What does that mean? That means that if there's a brownout, right, so short-term duration, you know, there's a lot of load on the grid and the voltage begins to sag, you want a battery that can respond incredibly fast and deliver 
tremendous amount of power, which our battery can do, and support that sack. And then when the full utility is restored, which is usually seconds to minutes on, on, on these type of events, well, then you can recharge the battery and it's ready to go again. That ability to be used frequently over and over and over again creates new applications for batteries where before we might have used a, either a less robust system or something that used more energy. That's exactly why I find energy storage so fascinating because there's so many different types of it and there's so many different applications of it. Just like you said, the flow battery is basically, from what I hear you're saying, is kind of the opposite of Natron's sodium ion battery. The flow battery is long duration, low output. The sodium ion battery is short duration and super, super high output to contend with things like blackouts and very frequent use cases, like you're saying with vehicles that are used often, but for short periods of time. Now, do you want to give me a bit of an idea of how your batteries work? And like, how does that compare to lithium ion batteries? Is it kind of the same framework where there's the two electrodes or is it something completely different like we're seeing in those flow batteries that have kind of reinvented the battery and just kept the basic chemistries of it? Yeah, so that's a very good question, Avery. Fundamentally, if you look at a sodium ion battery, you look at a lithium ion battery, uh, they're similar in concept. You are pushing ions from one side of the battery to the other side. In our case, the big difference are the electrodes. Prussian blue, and Prussian blue, for, for those who aren't familiar with it, it used to be a crayon in the Crayola coloring box, but I guess the marketing people decided that nobody knew what Prussia was anymore, so they, they dropped the name Prussian blue and changed it. But the Prussian blue is the material that goes into the blue and blue jeans. It was the material for years that goes into blueprint. So the blue that was required to make blueprints was Prussian blue. If you look it up, you'll see it's edible. It is uh, non-toxic. It's actually used to treat low levels of radiation poisoning. And there's a reason for that. And it's the same reason why we use Prussian blue. Prussian blue, when you look at it, it's a molecular structure. It looks like a giant sponge. And the beauty of that giant sponge is, much like the way a lithium-ion battery works, in a lithium-ion battery, you're trying to move the, the ions into a cage. And, and that cage structure is what you use in the electrodes. The, the issue that lithium has is, although there's a great voltage potential between the two electrodes, and you need that, you're trying to force, as I said before, a square peg in a round hole. What does that mean? It means that the lithium ion is physically larger than the receiving lattice structure that's trying to pull the ion in. So even though there is a, a difference in valence electrons and, the, and the, you know, the molecules want to move together, physically, there is a forcing function that goes on. And what that does over time is it creates heat in the battery, and it creates heat and physical wear at the electrodes. Hence, lithium-ion batteries wear out. We all know that. We typically replace our, our cell phones every two years because they're at 80% state of charge capacity, and they're pretty much you know, at a point where we're very frustrated with them. So we either buy a new battery or we just go get a new phone. That's the design of lithium. You know, in cars, we just use a bigger lithium battery, but you're still looking at two to 3,000 cycles, period, before you got to replace that lithium battery pack. So people are going to be seeing some pretty big bills down the road when they, when they have to replace those. I've talked about this before. Batteries don't last forever. We all know that. This is one factor that I didn't know, though. I knew that batteries are subject to the memory effect, 
which means that if you consistently charge a battery only halfway, eventually it will only hold half the charge that it's supposed to. I also knew that because of the lithium ion movement within the battery, and especially through the separator, batteries simply wear out. It's interesting to actually hear one of the reasons that this is happening though. When lithium travels through the separator and is held at either side of the battery, it's basically stretching the cage that's supposed to hold it in. Eventually, the cage can't hold the ions because it's been too stretched out, and that's when the capacity of the battery is affected. Interesting. When we look at the sodium ion battery, same concept. We're taking sodium ions, which are physically larger than, than lithium. You know, just look at the periodic table, right? Lithium is smaller. Our Prussian blue, however, we have numerous patents on that uh, and the use of it for batteries. Our Prussian blue lattice structure is very big. So when the sodium ions go in, there's no resistance. The lattice, call it a cage, right? So the cage is physically larger than what we're trying to put in it. No resistance or very, very little, creates no heat, creates no physical strain, there's no deformation. So instead of 2,000, 3,000 cycles that you can expect to get a lithium battery, we've already demonstrated over 37,000, three seven with three zeros, over 37,000 cycles with our commercial battery with what we would consider minimal degradation and performance. So we're very confident that we will be able to achieve 50,000 cycles. And I mentioned forklifts and EV tugs and things of that nature, where cycles might be two hours, right? So you, you know, run it for two to three hours, you take a 15, 20 minute break. During that time, the whole thing's recharged and you're good to go again. You're probably looking at 100,000 cycles in an application. The tires are gonna wear out first, uh, the motor is going to wear out first. The seat that the driver sits on is going to wear out first. So, so you, you, know, you pretty much have a lifetime battery in those type of applications, and then you just ship the whole forklift back and you know, get a new one. Yeah, there's some interesting things that go on. Fundamentally, it looks the same, but because of the materials, they behave very differently. That's a great overview. I really appreciate how in-depth you went for the Prussian blue because I really have no I I had no idea what Prussian blue even was before this conversation. I'll be the first to admit. To second that, I also didn't know that the forcing factor of the lithium was actually a factor of why the degradation of lithium ion batteries happened. I actually didn't know that before. My question now is is that function of having the larger space for the sodium to fit into and exit, is that one of the reasons that the battery can charge and discharge so quickly? Is there a different reason behind that? Now, Avery, you, you picked up on exactly, you know, one of the benefits we get from that uh, lattice structure is impedance, resistance. So the internal resistance in the battery is incredibly low. You know, no one's going to be able to see this, but you and I are on, on video, so I'm going to reach into my closet so you can see it. But uh, anybody listening to the podcast, you know, look, look us up. Be glad to send you, you know, visuals. So this is a 12-volt battery. So, folks, I'm holding up something that's a lot smaller than a bread box. <laughs> it's really tiny. But this is uh, four kilowatts of, uh, of power. So it's a tremendous amount of power in a small space, and it can give it up over and over again. So if you charge and discharge this battery and hold it with your hands, and please don't do this at home, folks, but I can because I do this for a living. Uh, <laughs> if I were to take this battery and, and charge and discharge it, yeah, you're, it's going to get warm. I mean, I'm not going to tell you it's not. You're not going to feel it getting warm. But you can hold on to it. You don't need oven mitts. You don't, you know, you don't need to worry about protecting yourself. It just doesn't get hot. 
if I were trying to do that with a lead acid battery, especially to charge it at the rate that we can charge that, the lead acid battery would melt. Okay, so a car battery would melt if I tried to charge it that fast. If I try to charge a lithium-ion battery as fast as we can charge that, the lithium-ion battery will go into what's called thermal runaway. Sorry for the dog barking, folks. But the lithium-ion battery would go in thermal runaway and, and ultimately um, catch on fire and cause a lot of nasty things. So, so yes, the, the Prussian blue uh, allows us to do things that you just could not do on other batteries. We're seeing a bunch of different solutions in flow batteries, having the different chemistries that allows for the mixing of materials to now this sodium ion using Prussian blue that allows for less impedance. Just a shorter question for me mostly, is Prussian blue a metal or is it something completely different? Because the ah. electrodes in the lithium ion are metal, right? Well, okay, so good point. Thank you for asking that, Avery. So we used aluminum as the substrate to conduct the electricity. The Prussian blue is the cage through which the ions are exchanged, creates the path. Prussian blue itself is a dye. It's a pigment. It's actually the first man-made pigment from the blue period in art history, but it's effectively iron oxide and a whole bunch of other chemicals. Originally, it was made from mine tailings, so the waste from iron uh, mines. It's, it's abundant. It's a commodity. It could be man-made, which, again, it is man-made dye, but I mean, it's very easy to make. You know, we just have a unique derivative of Prussian blue that we use that has to be made from uh, fine chemical manufacturing, but uh, fundamentally... When you look at it from a molecular level, it's not much different than the Prussian blue that you would see in a crayon or in a finger painting kit. I don't think I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but that's kind of like how graphite is used in lithium-ion batteries. You have the electrodes, and then you have graphite that's actually on those electrodes that stores the lithium ions themselves, and that's where it's stored. It's not actually stored by bonding it directly with the different metals. So that's kind of replacing that. Okay, that's very interesting. Right. Yeah, and, and so I'm glad you brought that up, Avery, because people think of electrolytes. So when you think of lead, lead acid batteries, your typical car battery, right? You, know, you got you to gotta keep it full of water, which ultimately is turned, you know, it's highly acidic. That's where you get your electron stores, right? You need So the more electrolyte you can put in there, and the larger the lead plates, the more energy you can get. In our case, the Prussian blue pretty much absorbs all of what we would consider electrolyte. So all of the sodium ions are absorbed in the Prussian blue. You know, there is a separator between them, like you would have in a lithium-ion battery. But all intents and purposes, if you were to shoot a hole through a battery, and by the time this podcast goes live, folks, you um, look on our website, you'll probably see the videos of us shooting a hole through our battery with a gun <laughs> and, and shooting holes through lithium-ion batteries and other batteries. So it's a really cool video for people who like to see things catch on fire and go boom. It's all in there because ours doesn't do that and other batteries do. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching those videos too. You mentioned at the beginning data centers and blackouts, brownouts, and these short-term use cases in vehicles. Is there any other markets that you can see Natron moving into in a big way? And how soon is that actually going to happen? Yeah, considering the timing of this, uh, the podcast and when it goes live, it's on public record that we are supplying our batteries to ABB, a very big electrical and electronic manufacturer out of Switzerland. It's their headquarters. They've standardized on our battery for an application that they call an edge. 
cabinet. That cabinet's used in telecom applications and in data center applications. So telecom is another market where we see this battery having a tremendous amount of potential. There are a lot of early adopters for it already. Household names, but I'm not at liberty to say their name right now. You know, other applications, I mentioned the industrial uh, vehicles, but industrial power applications, you know, a, a small little a momentary outage in an industrial processing facility, be that a mine, be it a, a soda plant, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, applications in, uh, in juice plants, where if you lose the power, the amount of time it takes to reset the processes to get everything up and running can be hours. So just a momentary outage in the equipment's offline. So again, great applications for the terms called ride-through. So you build a ride-through power plant. So it says, look, there's no way we're going to keep this entire building up and running if the power completely goes out. But we do know that the power drops periodically. And so we need something to ride through it. And, and again, a battery that can cycle as fast as ours and is readily available and can deliver those high peak power, another great application for a battery. I wanted to talk about overall batteries for a second at the end here. Sure. A big part of your company is sustainability and batteries have had troubles with sustainability. Lead acid batteries, as you said, have been recycled heavily. Lithium ion batteries, not so much. And the production of lithium ion batteries is, I've found at least in my personal experience, a big talking point of fossil fuel companies and those who support fossil fuels they use battery mining for things like lithium cobalt nickel as a reason why we should stay away from electrification and batteries so i'm curious what does does natron have any specific sustainability goals or objectives that make it better than lithium? Or what is Natron's stance on that, both production and then the recycling and end of life of your own batteries? Sure. Avery, I'm glad you brought that up. And again, I go back to uh, what I said at the very beginning, there's no such thing as a perfect battery. Yeah, they're all they're all man-made. They all use materials that have to be sourced from someplace. And they all have energy required to make them. And as you said, you know, whether it's a fossil fuel industry or another industry, Everybody throws darts at the other person, right? That's what they do. Well, the reality is that when it comes to, to our battery, we are very heavily committed to making the world's safest and the world's most sustainable battery that we can. From the safety standpoint, we've got that nailed. Um, you know, again, I said non-flammable, no thermal runaway, it doesn't get hot. You know, all, all, it's a very safe battery. Great. How do we going to address sustainability? There's no raw materials that need to be sourced on a weird supply chain. So we're not going to the Chilean desert and trying to boil off, you know, brine and displace indigenous people. We don't have a giant hole in the ground somewhere where we're trying to extract either lithium or cobalt, which is quite often used in lithium batteries. So what's in there? What's the secret? What's in there? Okay, well, we use, we use aluminum. Aluminum is very easily made. You know, we used to make a lot of it in North America. Now a lot of it comes from Russia, but it doesn't matter. It's easy to make aluminum. It's incredibly abundant. And it's highly recycled. We have a plastic pouch, much like lithium has a plastic pouch. So that's petroleum-based. Batteries are tied to the fossil fuel industry. You just can't help it. So we use plastic. Manganese. Manganese is one of the materials used in, in, uh, in, in the battery. Six most abundant uh, element on the face of the earth. Very easy to get. It's available on the every continent. Did I mention sodium ions? I think 68% of the Earth's surface is covered in salt water. That should be pretty easy. So there's really, there's, and then the Prussian blue, which, which Prussian blue can be uh, made 
you know, from uh, various organic materials. So it's a fine chemical. It's, it's a commodity item. It's available on every continent but Antarctica. So pretty easy to get. So supply chain, very simple. So one of the things that the industry has not wrapped its head around yet, and, and I'm kind of tossing out there because maybe somebody listening to the podcast will be, hey, that's my undergrad study, or that's my graduate thesis. I'm going to work on that. And, and that is when we look at embedded energy and embedded CO2s, right? Scope two and scope three emissions. There's another way to look at it. Halt, stop, one sec, Jack. I got to explain scope two and scope three emissions. First off, scope one is where you create emissions. You do it, it's your fault, deal with it. You run a car, you make clothes, you produce concrete, whatever. Scope two is indirect emissions from something that you can control. Electricity use is basically the example here. You control how much electricity you use, but you're not burning the coal to make that electricity. Scope three is everything else. Shipping, manufacturing, the mining of materials to make products, the recycling or not recycling of products when your products are at the end of use, and Jack is right here. Looking at scope one emissions of a company versus all three scopes is a very different experience, and it pays to see the full picture. Well, when we look at that stuff and we look at the battery world, we can kind of wrap our arms around and figure, come with a way to pencil it out. How do we equate that to lifetime energy capability of the battery? So I'm going to challenge the, the industry with this one and say, look, if we can get 50,000 cycles out of our battery, we've already demonstrated 37 with very little degradation. I know we're going to get 50 and probably 100,000. At 50,000 cycles, you know, if it's a four kilowatt battery, you start adding up, okay, four kilowatts. If you cycle it every time, you know, how many kilowatts and kilowatt hours is that of energy? How much did you put into it? You look at that ratio. I don't think anything's going to touch us. It doesn't matter what nickel metal hydride, nickel zinc, zinc air, iron oxide, you know, uh, aluminum oxide batteries, you know, uh, unobtainium batteries. I don't think on the near-term horizon, saying the next 10 to 15 years, I don't see another chemistry that's going to come along that can equal what the sodium ion battery can do because of that incredibly low internal impedance, the ability to store a tremendous amount of power and deliver it frequently. Don't think you're going to find a battery that's going to do that. Now, once it's worn out, what do you do? Like a lot of other batteries, what we, the data center industry, the telecom industry, the mobile lift industry is going to call worn out battery is really not worn out. 70% of capacity, 60% of capacity. Another unique property of a sodium ion battery is unlike lead acid and also unlike lithium and, and some other chemistries, the nickel zinc, nickel metal hydride. You don't have a memory function and you don't have this big, what's called a knee. You don't have a roll off in the capacity of the battery. It's almost a straight line, which means it starts at 100%, ends at zero. Now, can you take it to zero? Probably no value in doing that. But when the first person is done using it, let's say it's a data center, right? they're probably going to use it for seven to 10 years. At that point in time, they've written the battery off. They call up a recycling company. A recycling company comes out, takes the battery. So now's when we might be in the home market. Because now that battery has a zero cost value to it, or very low cost. So now the person getting it can break it down to a smaller block for a home or a small grocery store or small you know, market. Say, so, okay, you don't need as big of a battery. I'm going to take this big one that I bought for 15 bucks. I'm being facetious, but not an awful lot of money. They'll break it down, and now they can come and have a model put into the home use and, and get another five to 10 years worth of use out of it in a home environment. Once you're done with all of that, Again, going back to what goes into a battery. Why do we recycle batteries in the first place? Well, we started with lead. Way back to the beginning, lead's not dead. Lead's highly recycled. It's highly toxic. 
don't want lead getting in the environment. So as an industry, we said, we can take care of that. Right? We're going to clean up this process. We're not going to ship lead batteries to third world countries and have kids sit you know, in a warehouse with a bat and a hammer and break them up. And that's gone. Those days probably going on somewhere, I'm sorry to say, maybe with some third-party batteries, but the battery industry in general has cleaned up the rack. 98% of lead's recycled. So it's a poster child for that because it's valuable, because it's lead, right? It's hard, hard to extract and it's toxic. So we don't want it going away. Lithium, on the other hand, a little more precious, you know, has some, some intrinsic value. But when you really get into it, when you look at the cost to recycle lithium-ion battery, yeah, let's just say it costs 100 bucks, and the value of the material you get out of it is 95. It's not a good value proposition. And the reality is we start doing more global ecosystem destruction to extract lithium. The cost goes down. We do more harm to the world, but cost goes down, and the value proposition goes away. With sodium ion batteries, the value proposition is just not there at all. I mean, it's a commodity material to begin with. As I said, sodium ions, you know, incredibly abundant. So what are we going to do? We're going to take all of the printed circuit boards, the copper wiring, uh, the connectors, all the things that do have value are going to be stripped out. They're going to be recycled and repurposed. And what you get left with was that plate thin cell pouch battery that I showed you uh, previously. So folks look on our website and uh, you can take a look what the battery looks like. That has very little intrinsic value, but there's value proposition to either using it for waste energy and incinerating it in, in a plasma incinerator. There's no harmful Materials coming out at those temperatures, it just vaporizes. The slag that's left behind gets used in concrete aggregate. Or we can take the battery and not burn it, and we can just slice and dice it and chop it up in an industrial processor and again add it into cement and concrete. Why cement and concrete? Well, look at the world's largest industries that are CO2 emitters, and you will see the cement industry like up toward the top of the list not going to change. It's just the nature of cement. So if you can add materials to it and improve the resiliency of the cement, improve how long it lasts. Okay. So so by doing this, it actually allows the concrete when it hardens to be stronger and last longer. It's, it's, uh, you know, long-term, it's a CO2 win-win. Nothing against Jack here, and I definitely don't expect him to know about brimstone. But if you listened to last week's episode with Cody, you'll know that maybe it will change. Not immediately, of course, but with the technology of brimstone, which is cheaper than how we do it now, there could easily come a day when concrete production doesn't emit more carbon than almost every country on Earth. What I got out of that is there's a bunch of options, and the biggest one is just lifespan and total use. When you compare what it takes to make these batteries, which as you said, is not much, it's aluminum, super easy to recycle, super cheap, sodium very abundant like you said seawater it's everywhere and then these smaller prussian blue and plastic pouch battery components they just last so long that from what you're saying it outweighs what the cost is and then it can continue to be used even after it gets written off at these initial use spaces like telecom and data centers and then it keeps going down the line step after step after step and eventually it can be recycled So there's all these steps, and that's really great to hear, especially compared to lithium, which is expensive and difficult to recycle, as you said. Well, I think that's kind of everything I wanted to ask you overall. I just have a couple of rapid-fire questions I want you to answer kind of as fast as you can. Sure. Okay, my first question is energy production or energy storage? 
Yeah, I think it's going to be energy storage. Okay, so when we're looking at energy production, this is my second question. And I know you're in the battery industry. This is not your specialty, but just your personal opinion. What do you kind of see as the best option when we're looking at renewables? Hydro. Hydro. Okay. Do you think like the big, large-scale hydro, like big rivers and lakes, maybe even oceans, or like smaller distributed hydro? Yeah, so combination of, I would call the medium-scale and small-scale hydro. I mean, clearly the droughts in the western you know, half of the North America, not helping. I just saw today that I live in California, and in California, you know, they're shutting down one of the hydro facilities because they just don't want to have enough head behind it. There's not enough water. But yeah, hydro, and hydro, hydro both for renewable and storage. So pumped hydro is roughly 90 to 95% of all the energy storage for long duration in North America, uh, if not around the world. I think around the world, it's, it's well over 90%. So pumped hydro works. It has environmental issues just as anything else. Right? Not everybody wants it in their backyard. Dams do break. I mean, there's things we have to contend with. Okay, great answer. You mentioned it very briefly earlier, but you're in the energy storage space. Do you see hydrogen as an option for energy storage? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So uh, way back in my background, I helped uh, co-develop the first fuel cell powered UPS on a power supply with, uh, with the folks at uh, Ballard in D.C. You know, a fuel cell has a long life ahead of it. It's still working on some of the cost issues, but when you look at the performance, it starts up very quickly. You know, they're now down to sub-minute startup times for a, for a PEM, proton exchange membrane fuel cell. Yeah, I, I think the rush to the all-electric economy is a little misguided because I think that the hydrogen ecosystem can give it a solid run for its money. The internal combustion engine is far from dead. And you can convert it to hydrogen, and many have. And I, I think that we're going to see uh, a multiple paths going forward, Avery, you know, between renewable electricity and electric storage, and then hydrogen as a direct fuel source, not just uh, a storage. I'm a big fan of electrification. Why make everything electric? Big fan of that. But I also recognize that hydrogen and even clean gases like biomethane and green methane and stuff like that is going to be very important. Honestly, I see it as a form of the electrification because a lot of it's going to end up as electricity or come from electricity. And I guess I just kind of include it as the bigger picture of the future of sustainability. I think a lot about electrification, but I think it is more just moving away from fossil fuels. So maybe electrification isn't the best word for me to use with it. But I do agree that hydrogen is definitely, definitely an option for the future. Do you see a future where batteries are normalized in companies and homes? I know your battery is more designed for larger and quicker processes, but are batteries going to become something that everyone and everything has? Every is a big, big number. A lot is a better way to put it. So I, th I think you're going to see uh, a continuing shift. Um, some of it just to deal with grid stability. Like if we're going to have 30% of the, the vehicle fleet being electric in North America, um, the grid's going to be constrained and the grid's going to fail. And people are not going to be happy with that in their home or in their workplace. So you're going to see batteries to address that. So I think you're going to see more and more batteries being used. So it's going to be widespread, maybe not everyone, but very widespread. That's a very answer, yeah. My last question Based on your experience in the energy industry, the energy storage industry, 
when we look at goals that are set out by things like the Paris Agreement, do you think we can achieve those goals? Do you think we can get to carbon neutrality by 2050? Yeah, so my, my personal and professional opinion is it's not going to happen. It's a great goal. And if you don't have it, you don't have anything to measure against. So, you know, the, there, there's a saying, you get what you measure. And if you don't measure something, you don't get it. So you have to have metrics in place. And I think it's a, it's a good metric to have out there. It's a good target. Um, and if everybody's aiming for it and working together, you know, we're certainly making a lot of progress towards it. But, you know, there's some things going against that. We call it a headwind. And the headwind is that the global population is still growing. The more people you have, the more CO2 we're going to be emitting because people consume energy. Unless we want to tackle everything at once, including population growth, which nobody seems to want to talk about, you know, and even maybe net population reduction. So maybe the goal is by 2100, there's only 7 billion people on the planet. Okay, I don't know how you do that. I'm not the, the guy from the Marvel movies. I'm not going to snap my finger and every other person is going to be disappearing. But we have to start looking at more than just CO2 emissions. I do this question on everyone. I respect every answer to that question. I have to say I disagree. I think it can happen, but I respect it. And I really appreciate that you recognize it's a good goal because as long as we recognize that it's a goal to work towards, then we're still working towards it and we're still going to get somewhere rather than just saying, throwing up our hands saying, well, whatever, screw it. So. (laughs) Right. Right. I didn't say that you did. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's, I think that's everything for today. Is there anywhere that listeners can find you to learn about this? Avery, we are Natron Energy and our website is very easy. It's natron.energy. That's us. As I said, we should have some pretty good videos up there, some uh, some batteries being tested and blown up and all kinds of cool stuff. But they'll also be able to see, look at white papers and reports and, and learn more about our battery and, and just the market in general. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jack. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and making it work to come on and record this with me. I've found this conversation very insightful, and I'm sure listeners will as well. So I'm looking forward to continuing to keep up with Natron and your work and maybe some further collaboration too. Thank you, Avery. Another huge thank you to Jack for coming on. The future of Natron is bright and it's an example of the power of specificity. Natron has so much potential because they've designed a technology that does one thing really well and they're 100% focused on that niche. Short-term, high-output power. They're not trying to compete with a company like Storin, whose batteries do almost the exact opposite, with consistent medium output. I just think it's an important message for anything, even if you're trying to take climate action on your own. Don't worry about being good at everything. Don't try to do everything. Focus on something you're good at and like to do, and you'll do great. Again, thank you so much for listening. Remember to share this show with one person close to you and see if you can get them hooked on it. It helps the show a lot. If you somehow have some disposable cash left over after the holiday season, you can donate to the show over at patreon.com slash innovating a bright future. There's no minimum, so you can donate a single cent if you want. I'm not actually sure if you can do a single cent, but you get the idea. Anyway, stay safe, stay innovative. See you next week.